This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Oh no, my young Jedi. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Hey guys, and welcome back to Franchise Fatigue. Uh, this is a show where we talk about film franchises one installment at a time. I am your host, Gabriel Green, and as always, I am here with my co-pilot, James Hamrick. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, excited to bring this first trilogy to a close, although, you know, ending this series... First of many. Yeah, I think this series is still in the great distance. Um, so obviously we are talking about Star Wars right now, um, and this week we'll be wrapping up the first trilogy with Return of the Jedi. Uh, but before we launch into that discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Um, and one thing I feel like I probably should mention, I didn't mention this in the last episodes, is that I should probably give some kind of lip service to the, uh, the Star Wars Holiday Special and Star Wars Droids. Um, which came out within the the trilogy proper. Uh, the holiday special was released between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back in 1978, and everyone hates it. And I have not watched it in full. Um, the clips I have seen are pretty unwatchable, so I have absolutely no desire to actually sit down and watch it. And uh, Lucas has completely disowned it, and it's I think it's pretty much unavailable legally. I think there are some uh, some full uh, versions on YouTube, but yeah, it's I think it's pretty much best forgotten. <laughs> Man, no, it's not. The memes are too good. And are there memes from the holiday special? Oh yeah, memes and I gifts guess, and all sorts of stuff from. I guess Lumpy is terrifying enough. Oh to man, good gracious, do horrific. Um, no, <laughs> I I actually watched it in full for the first time. I think it was December last year. Me and a friend were bored, like he was over for Christmas, and I guess everybody was just hanging out with the kids, and we're like, hey, let's. Let's just watch the holiday special. So we braved it. And just with someone else watching it, it's pretty hysterical. I'll take your word for it. Um, and then there was a Star Wars Droids, which is an animated kid show that came out between uh, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. It features the adventures of uh, C-3PO and R2-D2. It actually has the voice of uh, Anthony Daniels and Ben Burtt, who's the man behind the sound of Star Wars, wrote several episodes. Yeah, I don't know much about this i think it aired for like two seasons um no no that was that was Ewoks. This, is, this is just one season uh have you seen any of this uh i'm not sure if I've, i i think i've heard the name star wars droids but i i really know nothing about it i've never seen any of it yeah it seems to be pretty much forgotten like i i I've, like i heard about ewoks a couple times growing up i've never heard about this until i was researching for this uh for this show all right so uh I think that's pretty much all the discussion those two warrant. Uh, let's dive into our discussion of the Return of the Je- or Return of the Jedi. Uh, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about the making of this film? All right. Um, so there's not a whole lot that I can just add about uh, the film in terms of the concept. Uh, like both previous films, the concept for this film kind of evolved along with the actual writing of each draft. It, it changed pretty significantly from draft to draft. Uh, and I'm sure you'll probably get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty of it more when we talk about the writing, but this is just, a, I guess, a basic look at the uh, the evolution of the concept. Uh, producer Gary Kurtz, 
had always kind of had a certain amount of input with Lucas, uh, and it seems like they'd work pretty well going all the way back to American Graffiti, working well together. Um, and originally, Kurtz and writer Lawrence Kasdan conceived a very dramatic conclusion to the many threads of the series, which would kind of crescendo into a bittersweet ending focused on victory with consequence, with Leia trying to pick up the pieces of the Republic and and Luke pretty much walking off into the sunset, possibly a binary sunset, mm-hmm. um, kind of in the vein of like the Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns. One of the concepts originally would, would have been that it would have provided closure for this trilogy while open the door, opening the door for a, a plot twist that ended up changing quite a bit as it was written. Originally, Leia was not supposed to be the sister referenced by Yoda in, in Empire Strikes Back. And so this would open the door for Luke to go off and try to find his sister while still being a closure or being a close to this trilogy. Um, obviously, that didn't end up panning out. Uh, Kurtz has kind of, or not kind of, has pretty much suggested, and this has kind of been hinted at a little bit by Kasdan, that much of what would shape the parameters for Return of the Jedi in its concept going forward into its final draft would end up being determined by toy sales and things like that, and so that would end up completely shifting the idea behind what this movie would be. Yeah, so eventually uh, Gary Kurtz just... Well, from what I've I've heard from interviews, basically he did wasn't interested in what he thought Lucas was guiding in the direction he thought Lucas was guiding the series in. So he he left the project and was replaced by um uh, Howard K- Kazanjian, I think, uh, pronounced uh, pronounced produced the film instead. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because like a lot of my issues with this film are with the tone and kind of the way the story is told. However, I don't feel like that original vision was all that faithful to the spirit of star Wars either. Yeah, it is weird. Like I understand wanting to continue on like the mature developments made in empire strikes back, like the very character focused thing. And, but this does, it, it doesn't seem like what we were building to with, a very bittersweet, somber ending. And it almost, it feels like a departure from what Star Wars was originally intended to be, which is like a revival of, you know, the action, like the very black and white action adventure of old. You know, it obviously didn't have to stay within that, which was, you know, what A New Hope was. But this does feel like he's, he's all, he would almost be drifting back into the kind of film that he was trying to be different from. Yeah, that very anti-war kind of darker stuff you had that time period also hear that uh, he was lucas wanted to make this more along the lines of uh, raiders of the lost ark i mean it's, it's understandable that he would go in this direction you know, he basically invented merchandising and i can't imagine how just how the the possibilities would have looked you know with that the star wars craze around that time period so yeah, they, they he brought back on uh, Lawrence Kasdan to write this film, although the, the script was very late. Uh, basically, they, they were working on it right up until shooting. That's probably no doubt due to a lot of the uh, the shakeups in the what the story was actually going to be. Uh, originally, they approached uh, David Lynch and David Cronenberg to direct this film. Uh, both turned it down, and I guess that that probably lends 
credibility to the the fact that there was a much darker tone originally because those those guys would not make Return of the Jedi as we know it. Yeah. Yes. And then another major major point of contention uh, in the development was the uh, Kurtz really did not like the idea of going back to another Death Star. He thought it was just too derivative, which I'm not sure I entirely disagree with. So uh, along with uh, Kasdan, uh, there was. Who, who wrote the script with Lucas? There were Richard Marquand and David Peoples uh, gave some kind of some contributions uh, in the development. Uh, Marquand, it was Marquand's idea to go back to Yoda because uh, he felt like the story hadn't fully wrapped up uh, for the for those two characters in uh, Empire Strikes Back, and that was I definitely like that decision. Yeah, and also, and after he got that idea, Lucas was added that line of the confirmation uh, that yes, he, uh, your father, he, uh, your father, he is. Because he heard child psychologists uh, might thought that maybe the uh, kids would just assume Vader was lying. You know, he's the bad guy, so he's obviously lying. So he had to give that confirmation so that children would, would actually believe that he's definitely his father. And what's crazy is it wasn't even necessary for the children because even uh, James Earl Jones in an interview said when he actually read the script for Empire Strikes Back originally, he said in it he, he said he thought to himself. Oh, he's lying. I can't wait to see how he gets exposed in Return of the Jedi. Like many people just were not buying it at first. Uh, and another uh, change that uh, supposedly the script went through was that uh, both Ford and Kasdan wanted Han Solo to die um, in their original ideas. But uh, Lucas rejected that uh, supposedly because it would hurt the toy sales. So to talk about the, the casting... Chronologically, this is when McDiarmid, uh, Ian McDiarmid, was actually first cast in the role of who is actually only referred to here as the Emperor across the entire trilogy. Um, originally, the part was between Ian McDiarmid and actor Alan Webb, and Webb was actually originally chosen because he was the appropriate age. McDiarmid was far too young uh, to Lucas for this character. He'd have to definitely wear some heavy prosthetics which he does and it ends up he, looking he was amazing in his 30s i believe yeah and he he was definitely uh according to lucas he was definitely wanting the emperor to appear very aged you know very someone who's seen a lot happen in the galaxy yeah it's, it's such an odd casting choice to you know to get someone that young but man <laughs> it works yes it works incredibly well um but, like I said, Webb was originally chosen because of his age. However, due to problems with the contact lenses that he needed to wear, um, which I, I agree, those eyes are a necessity because, gosh, he looks creepy. Um, but because of problems with the contact lenses and Webb actually coming down with the flu just before shooting, um, Webb turned down the role. And he, he said, you know, like, this is the climax. I, I do not want to disappoint anybody. So it ended up going to McDermott by default. Um... And unfortunately enough, Webb actually would end up passing away before uh, Return of the Jedi's release. Um, he passed away in 1982. Um, for some of the other characters, uh, the, I guess, hero Ewok, Wicket, and funnily enough, Wicket and Ewok never appear in the script of this film. Uh, we can thank. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I forget where we actually hear that first spoken, but yeah, they're never referred to as Ewoks and he's never named here. Um, but for this character, it was originally Kenny Baker who was supposed to play him. However, he ended up being sick, uh, the day of shooting. And so they just had to find one of their extras and that extra ended up being 12 year old Warwick Davis. Um, and he actually based a lot of his performance for Ewok off of his dog. He would say, you know, when his 
dog would find something curious or odd. He'd kind of tilt his head back and forth and just kind of have that cautious demeanor around anything unfamiliar. And mm-hmm. I think it actually makes the character pretty adorable. Yeah, in terms of just pure adorableness, adorable, adorableness. <laughs> It's a weird word. In terms of pure adorableness, I think it's an absolutely fantastic physical performance. Yeah, um, and he, especially it, from like it, a twelve-year-old. Yeah, it feels very intentional. Like it's you can see that, even though you know obviously he doesn't have any real speaking lines, just the performance. He moves in a very specific way. It doesn't just look like a, you know, a kid walking around. So I think it really helps elevate the what little character there is. And obviously, uh, Lucas was impressed because he cast him in a, in Willow. A couple years later. Oh yeah, how I forget when that was released. I think he was like seventeen then. Oh wow, so not much longer. To get into some of the other characters, uh, so there's a lot of rumors abounding about Prowse allegedly leaking information about the Empire Strikes Back and and even potentially some stuff going into Return of the Jedi, and so rumors kind of suggest that that is partially why he was actually not to be the face revealed whenever Vader was unmasked. Uh, we really can't tell how much of that is true. Uh, Kasdan originally wanted an actor like Lawrence, uh, Lawrence Olivier or someone kind of similar in status to play the part, but Lucas felt it could be distracting, and I actually kind of side with Lucas on this. I, I do think, you know, it's based on the reveal. I think the reaction from the audience needs to be solely based on what he actually like what this this character that's just been a monster in the past actually looks like underneath the mask and sort of be like oh look it's so and so i didn't know that i do think that might have been a bit distracting for some people mm-hmm. um and I, I think sebastian shaw plays the part really well and then of course Kristen hayden christensen would later be added in the special editions and that was just received with universal praise everybody is yeah. all aboard that decision and then lastly, for Jabba the Hutt, uh, obviously the physical performance was just a bunch of people underneath a suit moving his arms and legs and eyes and things like that. But the vocal performance was from actor Larry Ward, and he definitely gave him an iconic sound. <laughs> yeah. Filming began in January of 1982 in the Elstree Studios, uh, where the first two were shot. Uh, for Ender, Endor, Ender. For Endor, they used the Rainwood Forest in California. Um, to get the point-of-view shots for the uh, speeder bike chase, they brought in Garrett Brown uh, with his newly invented Steadicam rig. Uh, he would walk through the woods uh, with the camera shooting at one frame per second. And when that was uh, you know, sped up, when it was played at 24 frames per second, which is the normal uh, uh, projection speed, it looked like they were, he was moving about 120 miles per hour. For Tatooine, they filmed in uh, the Yuma Desert in uh, Arizona, and that set, have you seen the pictures of the set they had set up for uh, the Jabba's Barge and the Sarlacc Pit? Yeah. It's this giant, like, looks like it be 100 feet across, this giant raised platform in the middle of the desert with the, like, half of the, half of the, um, the sail barge built and the hole. It's huge. Yeah, and I think it definitely helps. I mean, I don't deny we're in um, Tatooine at that part on this, this huge barge. It looks pretty convincing. It was shot under the fake title Blue Harvest as like a horror film to help hide from the fans as well as keep suppliers from price gouging the production. John Williams, of course, returned to compose the score, and uh, composer Thomas Newman actually came in to help with some of the orchestrations. 
Uh, and finally, it was released in on May 25th of 1985, uh, three years after The Empire Strikes Back and six years after A New Hope. Uh, so do you remember your first uh, viewing and uh, what has your relationship been with this film over the years, James? So I'm starting to become even less convinced of my own telling of my history with this. <laughs> I'm, That's okay. I never believe you either. Well, looks like we're on the same page then. I, I do know that I had seen this fewer times than the first two. And I, I also know that it wasn't probably until I was 12 before I became actually familiar with this series um, and like watching it at an age where I could really understand everything going on. Um, but just after that, there was some point between that and probably 2014 um, where I actually rewatched them and connected with them. So yeah, I didn't really develop a big connection with this film until I guess maybe my my story holds up probably until like mid to late teens. Um, okay. As for my enjoyment of it, it's probably similar to just the general consensus. You know, I I still I love it, but I end up having to love it in spite of more problems than the first two. Um, but I mean, it's it's still Star Wars to me. Yeah, it's interesting because my story is uh, pretty similar. I remember seeing it as a child because i you know i i knew i always knew what was in uh, roughly what what it was about but i do know that uh we, i grew up in a fairly conservative christian family and we weren't allowed to watch at least the first half due to uh, the slave leia bikini <laughs> um so yeah I, I did i have very little memory of it before like five years ago or so where we actually i sat you know i sat down and watched the whole series through uh i didn't like it that much and for a long time this was my least favorite star wars film that's including the prequels um mainly it was just because i really 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 hated the ewoks um however like a couple years ago i went back and watched it again like right after seeing right after um empire strikes back and i definitely came to respect especially like luke's story um and, you know, just kind of what looking at what they were going for. I, I still hated Ewoks, but over the, over the last couple of years, seeing it a few more times, I've definitely come to appreciate a lot, at least the, what story there is in this film. I do like quite a bit. And I think it, it it's a very respectable close for the series. I guess we should briefly, uh, we have in all the other episodes, we should talk about the changes made uh, with the special edition. Uh, this one, it seems to have more like in your face changes than say Empire did. Um, Maybe even more than A New Hope. Uh, you see there, I mean, the first, there's the um, the longer band sequence, uh, with, which the song was already really terrible <laughs> in the original. Uh, and then it was put on with a, uh, they replaced it with a longer song called Jedi Rocks and uh, new CGI band members and live action dancers and made a whole production out of it. Ugh, it is it's really, really bad. Uh, I will stand hand in hand with the Star Wars purists as we condemn this change. And like, there's like three different shots of like going up in the singers' mouths, and oh gosh, it's terrible. And the CGI is really bad. And horrible, horrible yeah. CGI. But, but one the, one cool thing they did is they they uh, brought back the actually the original act, actress. It, okay, is it pronounced Twilight or Twi'lek? Um, I've heard both. I, I usually just say Twi'lek. 
because I've always said Twi'lek, and I think on the, the Clone Wars they say Twi'lek, and it, it bothers me. <laughs> Obviously, they brought back the original actress and filmed the, uh, several scenes of her in the cave, like after she's been dropped, uh, you know, kind of standing up and looking up in fear. That was all filmed for the, uh, for the special editions, which I think is kind of cool. And they still don't show the, um, the, uh, the monster. They just show the fear in her eyes, and I think it actually makes it even more effective. Yeah, I, I do think, you know, if you're going to take the time to, like, show her getting dropped into there, I think it does make the sequence work a little bit more if we get to stay down there a little bit with her and, and tease, you know, what's to come. Yeah, because in the first one, she just falls and there's immediately just screaming. This one's just kind of building dread and then, oh my gosh, what's, what's going on? What's down there? Another big change is they added in a CGI Sarlacc, um, which... I'm pretty ambivalent towards, I think the sequence, I mean, think is still an incredibly effective and scary sequence and fun sequence, you know, as it is. Um, I, I really don't care much either way. I've, I've, I don't know if I've actually ever seen the full sequence without the Sarlacc in it, so yeah, I'm fine. What about you? Honestly, I am mostly ambivalent like you. I think if I had to choose one way or the other, I, I do think I like it without it just because... You know, you hear it takes like 800 years to be digested down there. And seeing this as this bottomless pit with only these weird tentacles, you almost wonder what the creature is. Like it's just tentacles coming out of this sandy wall on each side. I I think leaving it to mystery makes it a little bit creepier. But I mean, the design of the actual thing isn't horrible. And I don't, I don't, I'm not too bothered by it. Mm Mm-hmm. And a couple uh, smaller changes with the they added uh, Vader saying no uh, before and while he lifts and throws the um, the Emperor over the edge. And I've heard a lot of hatred about this, but looking at it this time, it's it's really not that intrusive. And I actually I actually love the first no, which is like where he's just kind of looking back and forth and just no, this really deep guttural like it's it's his kind of it's his first. You know, act of rebellion in twenty years, and I, I do like that. I mean, I can sort of see how someone might have a problem with the um the second one, but even then, it's it's fairly short. Uh, it's not nearly as bad as people make it out to be. Yeah, um, I de- I was all aboard like the the hate train for it for a while, and pretty much even up until this watching, and then I watched it, and I I guess I was for some reason thinking it was almost just the exact same shout no from revenge of the sith but yeah, I, it, that, that's it what was, people say like people, people like are mimicking like like mocking it they do this like old long drawn out thing it really isn't yeah it's a it's really not that long when he when he shouts that i i think people have just it's one of those things that people have been very dogmatic about you know it wasn't there at first and so it should never be there and it's just been exaggerated to the point to where when you rewatch it it's you know i, I i'm i'm like you i definitely like the first one and I'm kind of take it or leave it with the second one. It really doesn't take me out of the moment, like some people say. It doesn't add a whole lot, but it's just it's there, and I'm I, I don't think it's you know overtly bad by any means. And the last big change is the the, uh, the song Yub Yub that plays over the Ewok celebration was taken out and replaced with a uh, a new original uh, Williams orchestration with with shots inserted of different places around the galaxy kind of reacting and celebrating to the news of the the Empire's uh, downfall. Some of the CGI is spotty. However, I 
really, really love the song that plays. And the, the first song doesn't sound like Star Wars at all. It's this really odd, like, chorus. And it just sounds like it, does, it sounds weird. Um, now, this could be just because I didn't grow up with it. But I think I think the other one, the other song fits much better into that. Just that feeling of relief and celebration and then going going and seeing Coruscant and Naboo and all the and uh, Cloud City. I think it's really cool and gives gives the film this the sense of galactic import that it should. You know, a lot of the, the prequels, like for as expansive as the stories are, generally don't cover a lot of ground. They are very focused on these characters right here and right now. The destruction of the Empire, you know, has huge consequences. There are, there are a thousand star systems, so I, I do like that we get to see what this actually means for the galaxy, you know, not just a couple Ewoks dancing around playing with helmets. Yeah, I I myself like I would consider myself a pretty big prequel apologist. I won't deny their flaws, but they're Star Wars and I love and accept them. Um, and so I'm typically, unless it does come at the cost of the, like the look or the, just the drama of the scene or whatever, I'm mostly in favor of anything that's going to give connective tissue between the two trilogies. So you know, I like Tamora Morrison coming on to voice Boba, even though I know that's controversial. And I, I do really like this extended ending sequence. Um, uh, first of all, honestly, if, if this theme were the original theme and was later replaced with Yub Yub, people <laughs> would rightfully hate Yub Yub. But yeah. I think now the only reason people defend Yub Yub is because it was there first. The new theme is just objectively better in every every aspect. And I, I do like seeing all the other planets, especially Coruscant, like panning by and seeing like the Jedi Temple and the... Um, the Senate building in the background is awesome. And my favorite detail is that, you know, over the prequels, we, we've become very familiar with the planet Coruscant. And here in this extended version, we see a giant statue made to the Emperor being torn down by the citizens. And just that image is amazing to me. Like, I love seeing original trilogy effects on prequel only cities so to see this huge statue of palpatine in a city that we've seen him occupy for so much of the prequels seeing that statue torn down it's just it brings the two trilogies together in a big way for me and there's a stormtrooper like like dead stormtrooper's body being carried by the crowds in the background <laughs> yeah it's fun um and then you know, speaking of connections to the prequels there's uh hayden christensen um i i really wish he had brought back Hayden to film scenes for this because it's actually just an insert from Return of the Jedi, like a, just a, a like an outtake that they use, and like he doesn't like the, the the stuff they use doesn't feel like it's entirely appropriate for that scene. He's just kind of st- standing there, kind of absentmindedly grinning, and I, I I don't mind that they brought back um Hayden Christensen because that you know that was that was the last time he was Anakin. And he would obviously wouldn't be coming back all scarred and deformed missing his arms and legs. So I don't mind they bring him back, but I, I I just don't like the shot they use. Yeah, I'm I'm mostly okay with the shot. I think my and honestly, I'm even okay like with Hayden being in it for the same reasons you are. You know, I know people say no, he was Anakin once right before he died, but I mean, if you I don't choose want that Anakin like coming Christmas, back, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
my only issue with it from a story perspective is <laughs> I think Luke would just kind of look at him and be like, who the heck is that? You know, I, I have no idea who this guy is. He would say the same thing about, you know, prettied up Sebastian Shaw. Mm, maybe I think, but I think you could, at least he has something to work from. Be like, oh, I think that's my dad <laughs> here. This is like, what the heck? This guy's younger than I am. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, this is a, definitely a bit more rough stuff in uh, this one than there are in the previous two um, two special editions. I like some of the changes. I think, I think this is this is the one that I probably do have the most issues with and have the most sympathy with people who hate it. Um, I guess just moving into the the main review, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the story, also <laughs> kind of the lack thereof in this film. Um, this movie is really oddly structured. Um, like the the core story, or not 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 plot, but actual story, is Luke going to face down his you know, his father and the emperor and try and redeem him. That, like that, that's the story of this film. However, we spend uh, thirty seven minutes on like an entirely separate act going to rescue Han. And that doesn't, aside from, you know, getting Han back in the story, that has absolutely no connection to the rest of the film. It's like a hard cut where it's like, it's basically an Indiana Jones story. And then it cuts a hard cut. No, we're we're back in Star Wars again. And then even then it splits into two stories. And the, the moon side story basically has no drama. Like, I don't think, like, there's a couple scene like nice sweet scenes between leia and han but there's really there's no arcs there's none of that with the character so it's just it's basically separated into three parts and only one of those actually has the real meat of the story now i i I do love the whole jabba's palace sequence and and it really feels like this is where luke was real not luke lucas was really going and completely embracing that kind of serials the uh the adventure serials of the fifties feel. Cause it's, it does feel like it feels like a t- television episode. Like this, if this was a star Wars TV show, this would have been a, an episode, you know, them going and rescuing Han. And once they're fighting on the sail barge, it's like one of those old black and white pirates films. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, it's, I think it, it is true to the adventurous tone that Lucas wanted it to be. However, it's kind of completely, um, expendable from the film. And, I, I really wish they could have somehow woven it back into the story. I think we were talking about how this could have been fixed earlier. I think it maybe having them discover about the second Death Star while on this uh, on this mission to save Han would have, I think, what been one thing they could have been very simple, but could have brought it back into the main story. I mean, all res- all respect to the Bothans, but <laughs> I'd much rather be you know seeing our, our main characters, you know discovering this this uh important secret yeah i think uh it's one of our friends we had him on before but ryan wall you know his suggestion you just discover that java is how they're getting their materials to build the death star you know don't reveal the death star's creation in the opening crawl just say there's something mysterious and suspicious going on and then have the discovery of like them exporting material during this and that you know, small lines like that can really improve this sequence that I feel like is this sequence does more for Empire Strikes Back than it does its own movie. And I feel like, you know, as iconic and, you know, I, I, just as iconic in general as the scene is, I find it hard to think that, you know, this is something that 
isn't universally problematic to everybody than you're spending almost 40 minutes tying up a loose end of a previous film. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially considering you only have barely over two hours to finish the story, dedicating nearly an entire hour of that. And I I don't want it to sound like I hate it, because this is a very entertaining sequence, and just going into the bowels of Jabba's palace, and Jabba himself is a a very memorable character in this you know, this hive of scum and villainy that he sets him around. It's a very fun location, very fun characters. And just overall, I think it adds a lot to Star Wars as a whole. And um, yeah, so I, I don't I don't mind it in theory at all. I think and it's very well executed. It's just like glaringly unnecessary to this film. Yeah, I think honestly it could have just been streamlined because really... I mean, I I do love the sequence. I love the Rancor pit. I love the escape on the barge. It's all really fun. The plan is kind of terrible. <laughs> it, I, I I don't think there is a plan. I, I yeah, cannot for the life of me figure out what the plan was. It, you know, you rescue Han and instantly get captured. Are you? Yeah. Then you send in the droids to try to negotiate, which does nothing. You know, Chewie gets captured in the process. And is now in need of rescue along with Han. Apparently Lando's already there. For you if Lando's already there, I don't know why Leia has to be in there. Like yeah. if you just And then Luke getting But then it all seems like that's the plan anyways, because he kinda has like everybody shares that extended nod with each other during the very end and R2 shoots out the saber. It I don't know what everything's meant to be. So to me, to come up with a better plan, streamline the whole process, cut it down to about like 20 minutes instead of 37, um, and then include like a nod, like a, a discovery of a Death Star, and yeah. this entire sequence works perfectly. They should have just sent the Bothans to get uh, Han. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and however, I do absolutely love the... Once once uh, they reveal themselves and just go all out over the Sarlacc pit, I think that's a, a really fun sequence. And the the shot where R2 shoots in the lightsaber, he catches it and ignites it and it's green. And then he just goes at it. The music kicks in. Just the speed of the action and the, the lightsaber use has gone up like an entire notch um, from the previous film. He's just wailing on everybody and you're know, jumping between the the, uh, the skiffs. And uh, also he blocks a, a laser. What? They, they can do that? It's just, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great sequence. Um, I'm glad it exists in spite of the problems I have with it. Yeah, the second that score comes in, it's it's amazing. It's swashbuckling perfection, and just, uh, something else that I, I like about this whole sequence is, despite the fact that you know tone is an issue that I'll bring up later, I still love how adventurous this is, and the the lines. This has some amazing lines of dialogue throughout. <laughs> like whenever Han hears Luke because he's lost his vision, and he's like, "How are things going?" Oh, same as always. That bad, huh? <laughs> it's just instantly falling, falling back into this dynamic and, you know, the line of uh, him hearing about Luke being a Jedi master. And he's like, I, you know, I'm gone for a few months and everyone gets delusions of grandeur. <laughs> or uh, there's not much to see. Uh, I grew up here. You're going to die here too. Convenient. <laughs> just his face as he just kind of turns and looks at him. It's just so sarcastic and... Yeah, I, I love it. The the tone of this like isolated sequence is so much fun. Yeah, and uh, one thing I, I do want to mention, I think Richard Marquand's direction for the most of the film, 
I'm going to isolate the, uh, the, cl- the throne room sequence and talk about that in seclusion. But I think for most of the film, his direction is pretty lackluster. It's like completely serviceable. You know, he gets the shots we need and it's edited together fairly competently. But it, it just feels very underwhelming. However, like shots like when Luke does grab the lightsaber and ignites. Like th- there, are, there are moments of like directorial brilliance here and there. And, but overall, I, I don't think he brings a lot aside from the throne sequence. But uh, like looking even compared to, say, like Lucas's very, you know, wide, uh, deep compositions with a lot of motion inside the frame or uh, Kirshner's, you know, v- very like medium compositions with. Uh, very, you know, very tight uh, camera work. Both of those felt very distinctive. Here, it doesn't feel like he he brought much style to the uh, to the visual side. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, I, with Lucas, you know, you do get it. It is very simple, but it just, I think, like I said in the first episode, over it, it feels very intentional in its simplicity, and it's kind of mimicking that Kurosawa feel, where it's we just capture so much movement and momentum within the frame that. You almost convince yourself the camera is doing more than it is, and uh, and then Empire to me is possibly still the most beautiful looking film of the series. You got all of these gorgeous landscape shots and things like that, and here it it feels um, kind of like just kind of boring matter of fact shots. Like you just put the camera here, started recording, got what was necessary, put the camera over here, got this coverage from over here. Mm-hmm. And, and put it together. It, nothing about it, other than the moments of brilliance you mentioned, feel particularly inspired. Like, it doesn't feel like you can point down and, and pinpoint what is the style of Return of the Jedi. And you really could. It's very discernible in the first two. Uh, but I do want to give credit to two different sequences um, that I do think, you know, his directing was able to shine. One is the, the speeder bike chase. Um... You know, we, we talked about... Which is probably eth- 90% ILM. <laughs> well, probably true, but I'm going to be positive. <laughs> how he how that scene captures speed and, and a sense of direction is just incredible. Um, we feel like we're whizzing through this giant forest, and, and it doesn't feel like... There may be a couple shots, but for the most part, it doesn't feel like they're just on the static... In, like these static vehicles superimposed over a, a green screen or anything. It it feels like the way the actors are playing it, it feels like they're moving and, you know, as they look around, it looks like they're looking around and interacting with the environment. And there's just a lot of other cool moments like Leia, like kind of flying up in the air and coming down right behind him. And and then anytime the, a bike impacts on anything, <laughs> you just feel the speed and power behind it. It's It's a really honestly like exhilarating sequence even to this day to me yeah i'm always surprised by how uncomfortable i am at how fast they're going in the forest like these are the least practical vehicles to have on you know a thickly wooded uh landscape and as you see by how many people die horrible deaths while driving them but it it's effective for the scene though uh, and the the other sequence um is the space battle above endor which also was it Lucas? I mean, oh, it's got to be. I mean, I, I I don't know that any of the directors had any control over the space sequences. Okay, well, because that was pretty isolated to ILM. Well, I still think I can still be positive, you know, because Lucas ends up receiving a lot of hate for stuff for this movie. So I'll, <laughs> I'll be I'll be positive about him here too. Um, whoever was in charge of this sequence, honestly, going back 
this might still be my favorite space battle of the series. Oh gosh, yes. I I have no idea how they did it. And you know, we talked about how impressive they were able to capture space in a new hope, you know, but it feels like what they did there was, you know, put the camera in still places and just it was the way they moved the models around it that really mimicked speed. But here that that's just not what happens. We're moving Ooh, with the vehicles. It was actually the models were still and was the camera moving. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I forgot. I, they they kind of show a bit of the behind the scenes in some documentaries. It, but it, it it feels like, you know, we're we're still and we're just kind of looking at this other stuff. But here in Return of the Jedi, we're weaving in and out of ships. The the Falcon is flying past the camera. Uh we see very like complex formations from TIE fighters just kind of breaking off around the center of the screen. There's so much going on. It and it doesn't feel dated at all. There's a sense of like everything looks tangible. Like if there weren't a, a screen there, you could reach out and feel these this very real battle going on. And it, it's just a the leap between the very the simple but incredibly effective space sequences from A New Hope to here, where we just we're moving everywhere and everything looks so real, everything looks so fluid. It's it's so impressive. And the fact that a, a 1983 film can maintain its status as like my favorite space sequence of the, the whole series is just incredibly impressive. Yeah, because like the first one you had like maybe two or three, two TIE fighters attacking the Millennium Falcon or like maybe three or four uh, you know, X-Wings to a shot just flying over this still Death Star. You know, the second one you had the, the Falcon kind of flying in and around the big Star Destroyers or the, uh, or the asteroid field. Here... You have a hundred fighters flying around 20, 20 um, you know, cruisers, and just yeah, the, the camera movement is so much more dynamic. The the just the the and the the, the fighters themselves look so much uh, smoother and cleaner. The everything about it is improved, and it, it's so exciting. Um, just you know, as just a matter of you know the way this is all cut together and paced and shot. It's it's just an incredible sequence, and and yeah, as you said, I, th- I think it's one of my favorite space battles in the entire tri- not the trilogy, the entire series. Even comparing to the prequel space battles, which are equal, you know, are even more advanced. There's something just so incredible about what he he created here. I mean, and not that this was ever a problem in the first two, but no, not that it, it could have uh, it could have been just because you know the side the scope of of what those battles were is really insignificant compared to this. Um, but something that this gets right, I feel like there's a clear motivation and objective behind everything we're seeing. You mm-hmm. know, we're seeing two armies collide, and we we fully understand this ship right here is trying to do this. You know, either through visual, like visually seeing these things, or you know, lines of dialogue. We understand, you know, this guy's trying to do this. They're preventing them from doing this. This guy's got to go around here. Like, it's a battle. You know, you actually see tactics on screen and. It's it's amazing that it all feels so real like it does. Yeah, and it's not just, you know, uh, action and, and technology for its own sake. It's woven perfectly in with the other two uh, storylines, you know, the, the storyline of a Luke and Vader and then uh, people on Endor. It's constantly cutting back between the three, and each one is so beautifully woven in, you know, driving the story forward. And since we're just talking about the story, um, I, I was thinking about, you know, how I would, like, the entire... The entire Endor sequence feels 
like this last time just felt like it's it's an, a a reason to have Luke and Le- I mean Leia and Han do something like they like we we know we know what Luke's story is and and the way the way the entire thing has been set up Luke has to face this alone kind of like I I definitely understand that so they're like well what do we do with Han and Leia well they want they'll go they'll go destroy a shield and that's fine however I I don't think either Han or Leia has like an arc or any kind of character drama given to them within this story. So you have one entire half of the climax that has no real dramatic weight to it. It all, it's all pointing back to Luke and that's rightfully so his is the main story. However, they're given, they're given more time than Luke, even though he's the central story with all the care, with all the drama, the entire film is focused only entirely on Luke and they're given way more time to just kind of goof around in the woods without uh you know without any any uh dramatic meaning behind it all yeah we kind of brought the structural problems up talking about the the opening and how it's kind of superfluous to the the story here but you know not only i I think that dedicating that much time to that kind of had lasting effects throughout the whole film um part of the problem to me is everything after rescuing han and being with yoda in his final moment it feels like just a bloated third act like it doesn't feel like this movie has a real middle um part of it is you know i I can't help but reference a new hope the way they build up to the death star in that is so perfect you know we introduce it in the opening crawl we see its power firsthand with leia we spend an entire act on it with our main characters so that by the time we get to the third act and the mission is described, we know the stakes, we know what we're up against, we know why it has to be done, and we just go into it. Here, you know, we're told of the second Death Star in the opening crawl here, which I, I think is a mistake this time around. And then as soon as Han is rescued and Yoda dies, it's like we're going into an extended version of A New Hope's third act where we're told right out the gate, right after the prologue, well, they've got a second Death Star. We got to go blow it up. But there's a shield. Like the movie plays its hand right at the beginning. We're mm-hmm. told what this last mission has to be, plot-wise, yeah. and, and and yeah, and, and and because of what the last mission is, and the fact that we know about it so early, well, now we've got like 30 minutes of screen time we have to you know do because you can't have you know the the throne room be that long or the space battle be that long. So I think. As a consequence of that, we're pretty much treated to like 20 minutes of meandering around on Endor, like trying to find a sense of purpose. Everything with yeah. Luke down there, like captured by the Ewok. Why, why do we have to spend so much time like recalling the events of the trilogy to these Ewoks? Like we've never been with them before. And I, I actually really like Ewoks in, in like in concept, in like their design and but in their function for the story, they just they don't make sense. You know, they We've never seen them before. We don't understand why we should care. Being captured by them only needlessly extends this Endor sequence. And I don't know, like I said, the whole film almost outside of Jabba's palace just feels like a third act of a movie with a lot of padding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Ewok stuff just drags on and on before they they finally get to the... um to where to the plan to go destroy the um the station there's just there's so many just steps they go through that again they, they don't mean anything because you look at empire and even then 
Leia and Han weren't given all that much dramatic stuff to do. They had just the central conflict of, will they, won't they? And that worked, you know, because you had the other half of the film was filled up with Luke and Yoda. So they you know, their stuff felt very dramatic, but it was, you know, very simple stuff. Now that they've kind of accepted their relationship, Han has, you know, accepted himself as, accepted his place as a rebel and, you know, a soldier for good and not just himself now. I don't know what you what you could do with those two characters, um, because because you know the the story needs to be pointed back. It's just the, the film is just so weirdly structured and how how fragmented it is, kind of only exaggerates problems that might not have been problems if it had had a more coherent shape. Yeah, I think you know I know one of the things that you like to do is try to figure out what would have made it work better. Honestly, had they implemented the changes to the the opening and streamlined it a bit and you know, inform and found out that about the second death star through that, you could have almost had just the middle act let us be the ones to actually get the plans or something so that the third act doesn't have to feel so bloated and we actually we have time like we spend an entire middle chapter doing something and being active. And then now that we have the plans, actually spend the third act being a third act and be like, okay, we know what we're going to do. Let's go do this. Like kind of mirroring a new hope in that we, we don't actually get down to this final assault until it's time to. And we end up avoiding so much needless walking around. And if it had been Wookiees instead of Ewoks, as it was originally planned, you could have given the dramatic side of that story to Chewbacca. You know, he's saving his home world from Imperial invasion. Yeah. A lot of... Just, it seems like there's a lot of different story choices you could have gone with that really kind of clean this up a bit. There's something interesting I found in an interview with uh, with um, Richard Marquand is that when he when he got the director's job, he he kind of learned the uh, the series frontward front and backwards, and he said he he found the as quote he found the over sophistication in uh, Kirshner's direction a bit excessive for his tastes, um, and he you know, he's, he's, he seems like a very likable, uh, intelligent guy. It is it is interesting that he was very consciously trying to pull back the sophistication and intelligence that Kirshner brought to the series in favor of I guess I guess he was the perfect pick for what Lucas wanted the series to be more in line with that adventure and and th- I think that 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 kind of style kind of shines through in everything except the space side of the Endor battle like the entire the tone of the film feels much lighter and more fun and, and both in, both in a good and bad way, like the especially like I think it comes through in the performances of uh, of Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford. Both of them, their performances are so much just bigger, and it just feels like they're really exaggerating themselves. And I think Harrison, being the better actor, gets to play that off much better than Carrie Fisher. Like Carrie Fisher's performance in some scenes, like they're my friends, just as cringeworthy at times. I think Ford, he understands it. He kind of understands what it is. It just goes rid- absolutely ridiculous and over the top, and it's a lot of fun. You know, hey, it's me. It, it, but he, you know, he's having fun. I, I really like watching him, even though it, it's not entirely consistent with his performance in the, in the first two. However, it, it it does just feel much goofier. Um, over over the the, the half of the film that is focused on them, just the way. The, the way shots are set up and the like the visual gags that are pulled and 
just the, the things they spend time doing feel so much more like a children's film than the first two did. Yeah, just to talk about those two actors specifically, to me, Fisher is kind of a mixed bag in this one. I think she has a couple scenes where she does pretty well. I like seeing her self-sufficient, although I'm, I'm going to give a big complaint right now. Why on earth is someone of her status on the dangerous ground side of this operation? Because they're all friends and I'm coming too. <laughs> oh gosh, that's, that, that, that scene. That the scene where they all I, volunteer to uh to come on the mission and they all come in happy the happy hug like that, that that's what this film is it's all I, just smiles and oh, there's no danger there's no threat we're all happy happy go lucky team and we always win and that's the thing it doesn't even feel like it's taking us back to a new hope because in that scene you know there's concern like this this is impossible and luke trying to be adamant like no it's not impossible like you know i've bullseye or i've bullseyed womp rats in my t16 like there's a sense and then Han Solo, just that, that one look that Chewie gives to Han, and then he kind of casually dismisses it just with his facial expression. There's a sense of, like, stake and threat going into that. Here, you know, with Chewie roaring, like, oh, I didn't want to volunteer you without you knowing. It's going to be dangerous. And then Chewie volunteers, like, all right, make that too. And Leia, count me in. It's, it's so over the top and cheesy and ridiculous. And... Uh, and somehow Fisher just plays it way too melodramatic sometimes, I think. Like with with Han meeting her out on the bridge and her like dramatically doing that old school, like almost silent film ter- dramatic turn with a huge <laughs> hair flip. It's like, oh, I don't know what to think anymore. You know, hold me, Han. It's just, it's like a soap opera. It's so ridiculous. And, like you did, and, like, like, like Naboo. <laughs> definitely get flashbacks there. Um there was nothing but our love but you know like you said han or han harrison is the more experienced actor so he has more control over what he's doing but i still just am not a big fan of what he's doing like i mean it makes for great (laughs) gifs but the whole like the the shrug with his big with his blaster in hand and it's so cartoony and over the top and then him telling c3 to talk to the ewoks like well tell them to and he's just got this huge like forced smile it's it's not thought this is i mean i know character wise it shouldn't be the han that shot greedo but this isn't even the evolution of that han like this is a completely different character to me sometimes and and i do think that that really does inhibit my enjoyment of it just to see these two characters who i've genuinely loved over the course of these past two movies give performances that sometimes feel really phoned in and feel inconsistent i I don't i don't know that i agree that han is phoned in i think he's i think he's just understanding okay i'm not going to get anything dramatic so i'm just going to have a lot of fun with it he seems to he seems to be really having a good time on set but there are moments where he's having a good time on set in the first two and we even said, like, he's the only person who really gets maybe an, an arc in A New Hope, but even that is just so surface level. He's never, I guess Empire Strikes Back is the most he's ever really been given dramatically, but even then, there are moments of just fun. This just doesn't even feel like the way he's played fun before. Like, he's never played Han with these over-the-top, like... Well, he's never been tied over a fire with teddy bears <laughs> trying to light his up. That's true. Maybe he's just swinging with the punches, but... <laughs> For me as a viewer, it it just feels like a different character. And with Harrison wanting the character, honestly not even wanting to come back for the third one, and then when he finally does, wanting him to die, I don't think he's invested at all at this point in the character. So I think he he almost looks at that as a green light to kind of 
go out there and be over the top. But I don't know. I'm I'm glad the Force Awakens happens just so we could kind of bring this character to a more dramatic point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm going to save Luke's arc for last, so we'll just get the the last of our major complaints out of the way. And we have Ewoks. Oh dear. Um, this was these were these were why I hated Return of the. Or I don't know about hate. Hate was pretty strong, but I really had a lot of problems with uh, Return of the Jedi uh, for for several years because. Okay, first off, they are absolutely adorable. They are really cute. Uh, you know, Warwick Davis as Wicket is absolutely adorable. I, I really like his first scene with Leia. I think that's probably her best performance in the film is talking to talking to when she's kind of interacting and figure out what figure out this teddy bear. So the, you know, it's an adorable design. The whole culture it's, it's it's incredibly cute. But the the Empire should not be defeated by adorableness. That's not that's not how that's not the story we're in. Um. So just the, the the script doesn't do any the many favors by ha- putting so much time in there without any kind of dramatic tension, but then once we get into the climax, and yes, I I understand and respect the desire to have, you know, a gorilla force taking out a more sophisticated uh, enemy, you know, nature rising up against machinery, all that's great. But I bought it a lot better in Avatar, where they're twice as big as humans and they're riding dragons. Not when they're, you know, two foot high teddy bears with Stone Age weaponry that is so clearly not piercing the uh, the uh, stormtroopers armor every time they whack them. It's 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 a whole mess of problems. It's just the the story is is flawed. They're they're cute and they're played as cute as they're killing people. And the actual, just the the execute, the moment to moment direction and the execution is so they're so obviously not hurting these guys. The guys are just kind of falling over because they're told to fall over. It's it just it just doesn't the whole entire sequence just doesn't work on any level conceptually and execution wise. I think it's very poorly put together. Um, and it it robs it constantly like we're cutting back from this incredibly dramatic scene with Luke and then this incredibly awesome space battle to this thing that looked like it was shot back for like a silent film. It's so overly dramatic and no, none of the characters get shot, even though they're surrounded by hundreds of guys pointing guns at them. And then they start fighting like this, this hand to hand combat going on when everybody has guns and it's, it just doesn't work. I'm done. <laughs> you well, take now a I'm chance. Start. Uh, for me, like the act, the battle itself doesn't even feel like a, a battle, what it feels like is, you know, with, with most big battles, the way it's done is the director will go to his design team and be like, all right, you can, like, come up with a bunch of different, I guess, like, go-to, not gags, but just little moment-to-moment, excuse me, little moment-to-moment action beats. And what this feels like is he just got all of those and filmed them in any order. Like, the order doesn't even matter. Unlike the space battle, like we we just said, feels like it has purpose and momentum and we're actively doing something. We're on a mission. It's like, here's a shot of Ewoks breaking these big, you know, tied up trees and smashing an ATST. Here's a shot of them trying to trip one. Here's a shot of them trying to do this. There's no purpose. There's no flow. 
We have absolutely no idea of what the ebb and flow of this battle is. Who's winning right now? I, I don't know. I just I mean, they tripped him right there, but then this one died over here. And it's... I There's no sense of battle or tactics. It's just a, like a series of vignettes of Ewoks and their little silly hijinks as they tackle them, what was supposed to be a feared empire. And there's no sense of discipline or tra or you know tactics from the empire either they just kind of just run pell-mell into the woods like they're not they're not forming up around the uh around the base that they're supposed to be protected they're just kind of running around and letting people escape and yeah and it's only made more laughable by palpatine saying like i have a garrison of my best troops stationed there like yeah do you really yeah so I'm not I could complain about Ewoks for a long time. But uh yeah, I think um anything else you want to talk about the uh, about the moon side of Andor? Uh no. I would much rather talk about this next part. Alright, let's get to the the good stuff. Actually, let's get to the great stuff in this film. And the reason that I don't hate this movie, it's it's my my feelings on this movie are so complicated. Like I, I really enjoy the first half, even though it, it's irrelevant. I have problems with Endor, and I absolutely love everything that's happening in space. Like this is this is Star Wars at its absolute best. So my feelings are really weird on this film. So go, going to we've talked about the space battle and how beautiful it is, um, but just just go back to Luke's arc, and I guess Marquand seems like a director who's kind of a slave to the script. Like when the script has great character stuff. He really excels at it. Like every everything with Luke in this film, I think it's absolutely beautiful. And like when he doesn't have stuff, he just kind of flounders. So, but the stuff with Luke is so well done. Just from the very introduction, where he walks in and we see Luke's changed, man. Like going back to even who he was in um in Empire, he was still kind of overexcited and impatient, and he still felt like a very like a young man who was. Like, he wasn't a kid anymore, but he was still had a lot of growing up to maturity to do. Here, this guy just walks in like a boss. He owns the place, and he knows it. And just, you know, force choking the two uh, Gamorreans. Uh, Gamorreans. And just the way he walks up to Jabba and is so confident. Um, another, again, this is a, a wonderful progression for Hamill as an actor. But you just see the power of what he's become, and you know that the hints of the dark side of the Force choke, and I think it's just it's just very well done. And moving from that to um to his conversation with Yoda, which which just kind of which sets up the rest of the drama of the film, and it's a very quiet, subdued scene, and possibly my favorite Yoda stuff from the original trilogy. I think this is some of the best puppetry that uh that uh, Frank Oz did, and he's. I think he's even more believable as a living creature than he was in Empire. Yeah, the way his his mouth, it, there's a genuine sense of like being in sync between the voice and like the even like little things like the lip movement, the way he's breathing under the covers, and they get it's crazy. This is a puppet, but they get real facial expressions from him. Like whenever Luke presses him about his parentage, and Yoda says, "Rest, I must rest." And sits down and Luke presses him again. You see they change somehow they create a change in facial expression over him, and you can tell the moment he's like, Alright, you know, I guess I owe him this much. And he reveals, you know, your father he is. That I don't for a second not believe that this isn't 
you know, just Yoda lying down and speaking and living. It's it just, it feels like such an, a, a real performance. I, I really love that scene. Another moment of really great direction is uh, when they're flying by, they're in the shuttle flying by the uh, Vader's destroyer. And you just see Luke, uh, Vader look into the middle distance and then cut to Luke and just cut back and forth. It's really tense scene. Um, just really well directed. Really, really sh- uh, shadowing forward to the uh, to the Ray Kylo connection uh, a very long ways from now. <laughs> and then just real quick about that, and uh, I didn't even bring it up in Empire, but the sequence they use the I didn't realize in the Last Jedi the effect they used to cut between Leia and Kylo as he's targeting her is the exact same effect. The with shot, Vader. shot, the first shot thing. Yeah, with Vader and Luke, where their faces occupy the exact same portion of the screen. Uh, when he's calling to him at the end. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, but just about Luke at the very beginning, Luke was never really my favorite character uh, for the longest time. It would probably, it might still be Obi-Wan, but you know, after that it was, it was Han and Yoda and all of these other characters. After watching the three of these back to back, probably about a couple of years ago, Luke is like neck at neck with, uh obi-wan at this point i i always never really appreciated his arc across this trilogy and it's pretty amazing because we see very real maturity between a new hope and empire but we see the same flaws he had there where he is he's quick to rush into things and you may maybe he makes his decisions too fast and he's impatient and here there is that change you know, I, I love listening to, to people who saw it in theater at first and you're like, you see the force choke and he, he's wearing black this time. You know, like, what's happened to Luke? What's going on? And and that sense of confidence he has, it, it feels like, you know, he he understands he's more powerful than he was before. And you first of all, you just established that with, he's doing what, Darth, what we've only seen Darth Vader do. Like, he just force, force chokes someone out and like, that struck fear into like the bureauc- the empirical bureaucrats before, and now Luke's doing that. So we understand there's a sense of progression in his own abilities. And then, you know, I, I love the Rancor scene, like seeing him like flee from him and outsmarting him and the way he kills him. And, and even just his speech to Jabba, you know, his warnings, like, this is the last mistake you'll ever make. Like, There's something dangerous about him. Yeah, like, he, he, yeah, he feels more dangerous now than he ever has. And it's, it's really cool to see, like, I, like you said, everything with Luke in this movie is just, like, perfection. And le- leading up to the, uh, the co- final conflict, we have the introduction of the Emperor... And obviously, we even McDermott is absolutely perfect, and I love just how completely in control he is of everything. Like everything is going according to plan, and you really buy that because, like, every time someone brings him a new piece of information, you get the feeling he already knew it, and he probably was the one who set that thing in motion to to make that necessary. And throughout the film, you keep cutting back to him as the rebels are planning, and you realize. This guy is 17 steps ahead of everyone else. And he just, he, he carries himself like that. So going into the climax, you're already very on edge about Luke's chances because you've seen this guy is not worried at all. And the way the, way the climax is structured, you know, you, you have Luke going in 
like he doesn't even feel like he's an important part of this mission. Like the rebels are going to succeed no matter what happens. I'm just here to try and save my father if I can. And then realizing that the, that all of this was uh, the emperor's doing in order to basically break him. He comes, you know, he comes in with this, this sense of, you know, calm confidence that I'm going to do whatever it takes. You know, I might die, but I will not turn. And then just see everything around him start crumbling where the, the fleet comes in and no, it's a trap. <laughs> and the fleet comes in and they're just being completely destroyed by the Death Star. And we cut to Andor and they're losing. And the Emperor is just keeps pressing him, telling you just you're this stupid, insignificant nothing. Everything you've thought and believed will be destroyed right now in front of your eyes. And and the thing is like Luke can't win in that moment. Like if he fights, he's losing. If he doesn't fight, his friends are all dying for nothing. And just every moment of nobility from him is kind of turned around by the emperor's wheedling. And just, it's so dark. And the music is so like claustrophobic and oppressive. With the, with the, just the evil and the drama of everything that's happening as the entire rebellion is like crashing down around us and, you just the, the conflict in in uh, Mark Hamill's face is is so visible, and the, the lighting, and just the visuals like this is the Richard Marquardt does an incredible job directing this scene. Maybe Lucas goes directed, I don't know, but the 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 way this story is visually told with just the this oppressive darkness and and the performances and the lighting on the just even down to the lighting on the lightsabers, everything about it is just beautiful. Yeah. Just the music, like you mentioned. To me, that's such an underappreciated track. The ominous orchestral, or uh, not that, this, just the vocals of this deep monk-like. They, they bring it back for the prequels, and I just, I love it. It's probably the scariest theme. It just unnerves you. It's very haunting. Uh, but just about the Emperor, something that I love, and I, I think they really capitalize on where, the, where we left Vader from Empire Strikes Back, where, you know... We knew the Emperor existed, but he almost felt irrelevant in A New Hope. Vader was Vader was the the scary guy in the mask, this force that's following us. Uh, and Empire Strikes Back, he's still scary. He's still this enemy, but we, we humanize him more. You know, we, we learn, obviously, the big twist that he's his father and stuff, and he becomes more of a character instead of just this static, unrelenting force. And so... We go into Return of the Jedi, and I, I love the scene where Vader first arrives, and he's tell he tells him, you know, the Emperor will be here soon, and the guy freaks out. It's like the the Emperor, and now all of a sudden the Emperor is this this terrifying force that we want to try to flee from, and I love Vader's. He is not as forgiving as I am. Exactly. Like, no, like hearing that line spoken from the guy who's done what he's done, the setup to the Emperor is incredible, and then when we finally see. Ian McDiarmid as the Emperor walk out and hear his voice. It's just so perfect. And honestly, Ian McDiarmid as the Emperor might be my favorite villain of the whole series, especially with the prequels. I I just love every moment he's on screen. Every every facial expression, the every way he like all, the way he inflects his voice when he you have that that biting delivery sometimes where I'm afraid it is you who is mistaken about a great many thing. Like it's 
he's so angry at sometimes, like so so sinister at other times, calm, cool, and collected. It's just, man, everything about his performance is just perfect. I'm afraid this year will be quite operational when your friends arrive. That smile, it's just, it truly is like evil incarnate in one singular character. Yeah, and, and like the space battles, the lightsaber fights are like, I don't know if improves the right word, but there's, they feel they're much more fierce. The 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 action is much faster. They feel the, the just the the whole choreography feels less choreographed and more just raw. I I love just the way it's shot. The the, the one shot after a, Vader is taunting him about his sister, and he just jumps out of the shadows, and we have that long tracking shot as they come behind the stairs and around. It's it's so good. The, the chorus comes up and. It's like you, you realize that this is such a this is an awesome fight, but Luke shouldn't be fighting. It's just the way the 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 way the your emotions are just toyed with and and with the entire scene, like just the rise and fall of emotion and and just the way you ne- you never know at any moment how you should be feeling about anything. It's I think like even though I think the uh, Empire Strikes Back is by far the most sophisticated. This might be the most sophi- emotionally sophisticated scene in the entire series. Yeah, I. This is definitely my least favorite of the original trilogy, but this scene, to me, from the moment that Vader says, you know, sister, and Luke jumps from the shadows with his lightsaber ignited, and the chorus swells up, and it's not, it's not this triumphant thing. It's like there's like sorrow and lament in it. As we have that just beautiful tracking shot going by, I seriously do think that the second Luke ignites his saber and he, they go across the catwalk and he's just bearing down blow after blow until he cuts off Vader's hand, you know, and has now done to him what happened to him. That sequence, to me, is the best moment of Star Wars across the entire series. Like, there is more attention to detail and perfection captured on screen there than any other moment it's just so good so emotionally heavy and it's the perfect moment it you know despite the fact that i think in other areas this doesn't deliver on what we've been building to this moment right here perfectly capitalizes on everything that a new hope and empire strikes back set up to where just that throne room scene and that moment with the sabers in particular is some of the best, like just movies in general, have to offer. Yeah, just moments like the the lightsabers crossing in front of the emperor, and he just smiles because exactly what he wants. Or after he cuts off his hand, Luke like looks at the wires coming out of Vader's arm and looks at his own uh, ro- uh, robotic hand, and and or just when he finally for the last time defies Palpatine, and like he, there's somehow this evil slimy thing becomes even more evil in that moment so be it and oh gosh he can shoot lightning out of his hands i mean come on and oh gosh i am so stressed out that moment like every time where he's thrown back and he's like on top of the wall almost falling backwards like ah because i have a serious fear of heights and every time he shocks him and he falls farther back i'm like no no pull, come back look pull yourself back i don't fall and it's the the pain in uh, uh his face as he's being shocked and 
the way it just cuts back and forth between the three of them or where Apopati is so focused and gleeful on killing him and Vader is just looking back and forth. Uh, and yeah, then finally when it, it all breaks and he throws the Emperor over and then just kind of comes back to quiet and you're like, what, what just happened? What did I just experience? Yeah, it's such an absolutely emotionally satisfying conclusion for what the entire series has been building up towards. Um, it's crazy that this this happens, this beautiful, perfect sequence that is the, the perfect climax for the entire trilogy is in this very flawed film. Yeah. Uh, it, it is crazy. Like, every... Every, there's not a singular moment spent in the throne room that I think is wasted. Just everything is so great. And just little moments, like when the, the Emperor stops shocking him, only to deliver an extra line, and then starts shocking him even more furiously. And like you said, just the pain as he's just writhing around, flinching, and you can, you know, the, the hand-animated lightning surging through his over body. His teeth. <laughs> yeah, you can just see, like, the skeletal frame and everything. It's just, it looks painful it's almost uncomfortable watching uh, and there's just some sort of like mixture of anger and self-satisfaction on the emperor's face all at once in some way and like you said whenever vader picks him up and throws him overboard i almost wonder what it's what it's like to be you know that 12 year old in the theater in 1983 we've been building up to this and we get that moment of quiet you know vader has no hand his suit is incredibly damaged and he's leaning down and he just killed the evil of evils saving his son and we just sit in that moment like what's going through your head like it is kind of a what did i just watch moment um and just to to back up a little bit before that uh let's talk about their their scene their shared scene on endor that whole throne room sequence is perfectly set up by this. We know what Luke's intentions are going in there. You know, you you talked about how going in there, Luke doesn't even consider himself an important factor. Like he's walking in there with the same confidence he walked into Jabba's palace with. You know, like we've we've got a plan, you idiots. I'm just here to save my dad. <laughs> we we see that on Endor when he's like, "Take me up there." It, it doesn't matter at all. I'm not turning. And not only am I not turning, you are turning. You know, you're going to join me. Everything, like all of what Luke wants to accomplish is set up on that one, um, I, I I don't know what you'd call it, that bridge scene, I guess, on Endor. But even that, like that's probably Vader's biggest scene before going into the throne room. And it's crazy how much he's changed, you know, when he even has the line, you know, it, it's too late for me. I think that's the first time we we get any sort of look into Vader as a human. And he says, son. Than, son. Do what? It's too late for me, son. He calls yeah, him son. Like it's, this isn't this faceless mask of terror. This is a, a person, and we're finally seeing that. And you almost get a sense of, of a history of regret. Like, almost reservation about what I've been doing. Like... I'm I'm doing this because I have no choice at this point, and it just feels so different from Vader before, but in a natural way, in the in the way it's supposed to. And it feels like genuine pride when he, uh, I see you've constructed your new lightsaber. Yeah, Is the dad being proud of his? The sense of pathos coming from his character—it's like a whole other level. Yeah, and um, then we get 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And and then we get their final scene together when he, you know, he he tells him to take off his mask and says, "No, you'll die." And said, "You know, nothing will change that." And we finally get. Because, you know, it it, may, it means even more after seeing the end of Revenge of the Sith when we see the helmet being placed on him and we see what his vision is like. It's like this red, optic, weird kind of vision. And so we understand, you know, like, let me look at you with my own eyes. And he takes his helmet off. And there's very real connection between the two. And you see this sympathetic smile. And, and in one moment, like this, the most terrifying but awesome, crazy, villainous character ever is this sad defeated old man and you know he you know he's telling you know tell your sister you were right about me you were always right like there's in such a short scene there's a very real bond forged between the two actors Mm -hmm. and it's just such a a sad but emotionally satisfying scene or like I, as a viewer, am sad I just saw Vader die. Like, what? <laughs> no way in 1977 would I possibly have anticipated this, like, feeling this at this final climactic moment. Yeah, and th- the way Shaw's voice breaks was like, you already have. Oh, gosh, it's 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 so good. And then just moving in from that to the him at the funeral pyre and the, the, the music, it's... For all my frustrations, this film's ending is so emotionally satisfying on every level I could have wanted. Just, I'm so at peace and happy with how the story, the film ends. Yeah, and I love that they kind of separate Luke from everyone else. You know, he has his moment to hug everyone and like and be happy, but Luke has been through something that these other people haven't, and I love that the ending acknowledges that he's by himself looking at the funeral pyre he's getting a moment no 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 one else is going to vader's funeral yeah and it's because you know no one else could possibly understand what the crap just happened on the the emperor's flagship like it's just i love that the movie takes the time to acknowledge that to say that luke as a character has been through something no one else can even relate to even leia who also discovers that vader is her father she hasn't been there. She hasn't seen him. She can only hear from Luke what happened. And in terms of the history of the galaxy, Wicket did more. Like as far as like just from an outside perspective, Wicket did more to save the galaxy than than Luke did. And just how completely insignificant and unimportant this you know battle for the soul of Vader was in the long scheme of things. You know everything that happened would have happened with with or without that. But. That's still the soul of this film. And the film understands that. All right. Uh, and finally, uh, we talked about this to, uh, quite, quite a bit of length with uh, Josh Crabbe in the last episode, last episode. But I've, I've come to think now that Lucas was already convinced that the Jedi way was wrong. Even in the original trilogy. Because um, you look at First off, you know, having the Yoda the entire time was saying, well, first off, that you know, Luke can't be trained. He's too old. He's too impatient. And him telling him that he should take the pragmatic view and let his friends die. 
or you know you have to kill vader you there's no way vader can be saved the only way you can save the galaxy is if you you know leave your emotions behind and kill your father every step of the way him and obi-wan yoda and obi-wan are proven wrong finally the entire their entire thing was you know you have to kill vader once you go to the dark side forever uh will it uh dominate your destiny or whatever control your destiny like their their entire idea was if you go to the dark side if you if you um go to the dark side you're completely uh your soul is completely lost there's no possible redemption there's there's you can't have any kind of feelings or emotions while you're doing this everything has to be done with this cold pragmatism of what what you think will probably possibly save the most lives and and luke's great action and a great triumph in this series is rejecting that and choosing familial love it's him choosing to love his father that saves him i don't think i I, not to look forward to the prequels too much but i think that the seeds were already very clearly laid the seeds for his attitude his very his attitude towards the uh, or much less positive attitude towards the jedi in the prequels were completely in place here and over the exact same philosophical issues of the lack of attachment you know this very cold pragmatism that you know that that caused vader to fall to the dark side is what redeems him so yeah i don't think it's fair to say that lucas like changed anything or probably should change some things but like i i don't i don't i think in spirit we are already supposed to be heavily questioning the Jedi's philosophy, or at least core philosophies, um, or not not necessarily morality, but that that kind of lack of attachment and pure cold Very devotion cold to pragmatism. the force. Yeah, that, that that kind of abstract devotion to the force. That isn't what wins in the end, in even the original trilogy. Yeah, like you, I I really do disagree with all these claims of revisionism. I don't think that's what happened. And it's it's the point that you brought up that convinces me the most. It is explicitly emotional, familial attachment that saves the day, that saves Vader. That When we go into the prequels, what is it that um, the Jedi preach against? Attachment, emotion, you know, love. So it feels like this is absolutely the way it was always planned. You know, the Jedi Order is completely gone by the um, by the time of the original trilogy. And like you said, we're seeing them being proven wrong time after time. Luke saying to Yoda, you know, I cannot face my father. And I forget what Yoda's immediate line is, but it's pretty much one of like, oh, well, then this is all for nothing. If you can't kill your father, what's it all been for? And even, you know, Obi-Wan trying to justify himself, like what I said was true from a certain point of view. If I was Luke, I'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what kind of per- point of view do you have to be like, I get it. But even still, that's that's a bit of a stretch. And so, like, they're borderline lying to him. They're being proven wrong. Not borderline. He says he killed your father. That's true. Yeah, that, I mean, they're... Completely, like, they're lying to him about the, his true history. They're telling him, don't do this. It is impossible. Vader's beyond redemption. 
Your attachment to your father will not save you. It'll be your downfall. Oh, look, your attachment to your father ended up saving your father's soul. It's, it feels like all the prequels are is a very deep exploration of what was already teased to be their faults. And so I do think even back in the 70s and 80s, at least the 80s, Lucas in his mind thought that in a way the Jedi were responsible for their own downfall. Um, I think even Yoda himself changes slightly between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi just because Luke proves him right and he does show back up. He's much less condescending. Yeah, he's less condescending. And he was very much against, you know, like emotions and feeling and things like that. But as Luke convinces him, you know, I'm going to go face my father, but I will not kill him. Yoda does give him a piece of advice. And I think this advice is much more nuanced than everything he said in Empire Strikes Back when he says, bury your feelings. They do you credit, but they can be used by the Emperor. The fact that he acknowledges, they help you. You know, you there is something about you, your optimism, the way you feel, your just this innate goodness about you can do you credit. But you've got to bury them so they're not exploited. And I don't even think Luke really buried Like, he doesn't bury them. He makes it very evident to the Emperor, I'm here for my dad. But even still, I think even Yoda is like, okay, your feelings are okay. Like, try to hide them, but he's not even saying, don't feel, you know, kill Vader without remorse. Like, it feels like a more nuanced approach than he was in the previous film. And he doesn't feel like he's trying to change Luke in, Return, in the immediate Return of the Jedi. He seems... He seems pretty resigned to what who Luke is and what Luke's about. He's just trying to help him on his way now. Yeah. So now that we've kind of like gotten this entire first trilogy, what what are your thoughts about the Force? You know, because there's there's so much <sighs> controversy about what the prequels say about it, and that and then what the the two the Clone Wars and Rebels does with the Force. Yeah. And then even on you know things like the Last Jedi, like, it's just. <laughs> There's so many different statements about it. So just trying to isolate it to these, this original trilogy between A New Hope being very vague about it and then the lessons you know, we receive in Empire and, and, and the powers we see in Return of the Jedi. It just, it, I don't know. It feels this like it's, they're not, they don't go into any much detail about it. It's this very mystical, you know, it, it surrounds us and binds us, whatever, whatever, whatever that even means. <laughs> not this crude matter, luminous beings are we. Ah. Uh, do they ever talk about the will of the Force? I don't think so. And it's crazy because I think that even the idea of the will of the Force is something fans accept. But I don't think we hear about that. Maybe it's the EU stuff that introduces it. Like later on, it becomes a much more conscious, almost deity-like thing. Here, it just feels like it's, an, I guess, an energy field that certain people, like they talk, this one is strong, the Force is strong with this one, and he's, he's Vader's son, so he's more powerful. I guess it's just this energy field that people can tap into, but there's obviously some some semblance, or maybe not. Maybe if it's the Grey Jedi, right? But there's some semblance of morality to it, where it's you know certain forms of disciplines within this are good and right and lead to righteousness, and other types, you know, the dark side, which none of this is really explained or what it actually means and some people like that mystery i, I personally am not i'd rather i'd rather understand um see as far as like there seems to be much more theology kind of surrounding the force in the prequels here 
it's just I, I guess the best I can say is it's just an energy field that that gives power to people with certain types of that certain exercises in that power being connected gosh because then you have the whole thing the dark side if you fall to the dark side you're evil you're automatically evil there's and you know, the light side seems fairly benevolent so there's morality to it but i don't know if there's any personality yeah i probably like the like the mystical aspect of it more than you i i really do enjoy a lot of yoda's speeches about it and with his you know with the conversations in Empire Strikes Back with Luke saying, you know, um, is the dark side more powerful? Yoda's crew say, no, no, but it's it's quicker, you know, it's easier. And then what just, I do like the fact that, you know, you're, you're most at peace with reality. You know, we, we've teased that the Force gives you the ability to, like, see into the future, you know, with Luke seeing his friends and and things like that, and even Yoda teasing that he has the ability, but that, you know, always in motion the future is. Yeah, and so here, you know, the more at peace you are, you the more you're able to... And I think that maybe, like, while the will of the Force might not be really explored or even stated as, like, as such in this, I think you can kind of see it hinted at. You know, it almost feels as if the more at peace you are and the more calm you are and the more willing you are to give yourself up to the force, the more easy you are to discern its will. Like that, that felt partly like the, what Yoda was trying to train him to do originally, like be at peace and you will, you will have a clearer understanding of what's going on. The, the quicker you are to be manipulated by emotions, the less intact you are with the force and the less, but then again, of course, it's his emotions that lead him off to save his friends and to save his father. So yeah, I don't know. I, for me, I do. I I like the mystical aspect of the Force. Um, I like, you know, for some reason, I, it's just a cool line to me. Like luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. That there is, the Force is this thing that kind of, it's the one constant in the universe. Um, but I say, I talk about how much I like this while at the same time kind of being a fan of what the prequels say about it too. So honestly, I think there's a lot less contradicting statements about the Force across the whole series than most people. Yeah, so all that to say, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so I think we've pretty much covered this film. Uh, <laughs> you know, the first two thirds is just ranting against it. The first, the last third is just tripping over ourselves to praise it. So it's a, it's a mixed bag. You have anything else you want to say before we uh, move to our close? Uh, no, I think I'm pretty pretty good to move on. All right. Uh, so what is your star rating for Return of the Jedi, and how does it rank in the series so far? Okay. Um. So from looking at it objectively, I would probably go three out of five. Um, huh. Definitely not right down the middle. I, I, I wouldn't go so far as, say, 2.5 or anything. Um. So yeah, I'd say if I, you know, had to give it a stamp, I'd say three out of five stars. Personally, because of how much I just absolutely love what they do with Luke, and I just feel so full and complete and satisfied with the way it it closes up, uh, it closes things up. It's probably more like a three point five for me. Okay, it, it it would have been a three. It's been a three star film for me for forever, but this last viewing, it uh, did bump it up to three point five as well. 
Uh, yeah, for the reasons you said, it's it's the perfect ending for the series. And like, while Jabba's palace is a misstep, it's a really fun misstep, and the the space battle is absolutely astonishing. So uh, the technology, like even things like the the the, the ATSTs on on uh, Endor, they the technology behind that is so awesome looking like even from like how slow and lumbering the uh atats were in um empire like the technology on every level is improved um it has serious serious like missteps like things that i would call like truly dreadful however what matters like when, when it comes down to it, when it really matters not only does it like just not it only does it give us a good ending it gives us like the best possible ending we could have ever hoped for with this series so yeah 3.5 nice uh as for where it ranks um i think as of right now it's still it goes a new hope empire strikes back then um return of the jedi with a new hope and empire being like separated by a minuscule amount of difference we are of one mind uh, so on its initial release, it grossed 252 million domestically, and over the course of uh, several re-releases, it was brought up to 309 million, uh, and then added on 165 million worldwide for a total lifetime gross of 475 million. It's it's actually the lowest grossing worldwide of the original trilogy, and it's strange. It made more than The Empire Strikes Back domestically. However, like it's significantly lower. Like. I think a good like 60, 70 million than Empire Strikes Back worldwide. I'm not sure why mm-hmm. that is. And looking at the original original reviews, they seem to be overall fairly positive. They were you know, the same soulless bastards who didn't like <laughs> the first two still criticized this film. The, you don't see any of the uh anybody like, you know, proclaiming the sophistication that happened in uh like with the uh with Empire Strikes Back. Overall, they seem like this is a really fun adventure film that closes out the story well. They're not terribly effusive. They're just, you know, fairly positive. You know, there are there, there's a pretty strong contention that is criticizing the fact that this is definitely far more childlike than its predecessor, and that seems to be pretty much the kind of the reception that has been over the, the film's legacy. Like there are, there's a, there actually is a surprisingly large contingent that, uh, even though they're definitely the minority, but that, that considers this their favorite film of the original trilogy. I don't understand those people, but uh, you know, more power to them. But for the most part, it does seem to be considered the uh, the least of the original trilogy. However, it seems like everybody likes it well enough. Yeah, and honestly, I understand why it would be for like nostalgic reasons and things like that. You know, it probably would have been my had I watched it more. It probably would have been my favorite as a kid growing up and cemented a place in my heart. And but yeah, it is. It is weird. I think there are certain movies that I that were hailed as as classics that have almost been immune to like retrospective criticism. Uh, it's it's interesting to me that Return of the Jedi isn't one of those, and that you know as time time goes on, people are like, yeah, this one isn't amazing like the first two, but it's still really good. Like I I like the way this is viewed, and it gives me hope for like people. Being able to look back at the past objectively, because really, I, I oh well, yeah, that's it gives me hope. Not that it'll ever happen, but I do appreciate the fact that I, I pretty much am wholeheartedly in agreement with the modern consensus of the film, um, and that people aren't really blinded by nostalgia, but they're also not just like hate it for, you know, being a little bit sillier than everything else. It's just a, a very 
balanced acknowledgement of its strengths and weaknesses, and we need more of that. Who'd have thunk? So yeah, I think we we went over pretty much the legacy of the original trilogy up pretty well in the first uh, episode, as in we ranted for a bit. <laughs> I probably should mention there was a uh, another animated TV show called Star Wars Ewoks that aired for two seasons between 1985 and 86, as well as two live action, I guess, TV movies. Um, was it the <laughs> Caravan of Courage and Battle for Endor? Um, I haven't Classics. seen it. I haven't seen any of these, um, but they are they're a bit more well well slightly well received than say the special or star wars droids just to add a little bit to um the legacy of this in particular and the the trilogy as a whole um i think you brought it up during either during the actual episode last week or just a conversation surrounding it but i'm not sure if there's ever been you know at this point a trilogy like this you know where each sequel is so directly tied to the previous one um and almost feels like this this almost feels like the first true trilogy with a beginning middle and end where each where it's it's one story and each one is just a chapter within that and so it's when when we talk about you know famous movie trilogies this is almost like the earliest one we go back to and there haven't been a lot since like most of them or a lot there's a lot of others that'll have you know the first the first episode is kind of just testing the waters. Then the second two have a, a, a solid story in between them. But there are a couple like Lord of the Rings, which but that's based on a book. And several other book series that do have a, a more coherent, a more clear story through line. But yeah, even then, even though the, you know, this is the first, there are very few still that have such a clear story uh, from, you know, from the outset. Okay. So that was the original trilogy. Um, I guess that, yeah, that's the uh, first landmark we made it, James. Only uh, a couple more months to go. There's, man, it's weird thinking about what we've got in front of us. We've got some low lows and some high highs to look forward to. Yeah, I was absolutely terrified going into A New Hope. Just like, how do I, how do we even wrap our minds around this? And I'm honestly almost as scared looking at the prequels because the prequels have their own entire cultural conversation that is like separate from them being star wars so so much baggage yeah so it's gonna be very interesting so obviously next week we will be back with the phantom menace and i think going forward i don't i'm not nearly as concerned with confining ourselves to you know what what is the story on the right here and now like after that lucas but you know by the time we got to the phantom menace i think lucas pretty well had a solid idea of what he wanted Star Wars to be. So I, I do want to dive a lot more into the entire intertextuality uh, in the next episode. And from then on out, it's going to be just free reign on all, all any and all discussion. Man, I love having conversations like these. So the as daunting as it feels, there's something pretty awesome about the prospect of having like months of unbridled Star Wars conversation. How do we fix Jar Jar? That and many more exciting things next week. Uh, so yeah, uh, for The Phantom Menace, if all goes well, we will be joined by uh, the other host of the Home One Radio, Blaine Grimes, who we also had back on, underrated. So this is going to be, a like whether or not you love or hate this film, there's going to be a lot of good discussion <laughs> just trying to figure out these movies. So until next week, when we pick up another pathetic life form, we will see you next week. It's a trap! It's a trap!